came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Friday the 1st of October. So here is your October Sky Guide. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you Two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your guy guide from Ian. Hello Ian, how are you doing? Hello Brendan, I'm not doing too badly. Great to be speaking with you again. Can you tell us Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of October? Well, October is another bumper month where we're going to be seeing lots and lots of interesting things. Saturn and Jupiter are still prominent in our, in our evening skies. But the standout, of course, is going to be Venus climbing up into Scorpius. And we'll see some really nice uh, interactions between Venus and the stars of Scorpius. Mercury, which has been our very good display, is only going to be visible for the first week of October. But the, and then it will sink in, into the twilight. And we have the Orion meteor shower, but that's a little bit sad. So first I'll, I'll go through the, the moon phases as I usually do. And so October the 6th is the new moon, which will be an excellent time to look at the constellations and their clusters. October the 13th is the first quarter. October the 21st is the full moon. So not so good for watching faint fuzzies. And October 29th is the last quarter. Perigee, when the 
moon is closest to the Earth is on October the 9th, and apogee when it's furthest from the Earth is October the 25th. Okay, so let's start in the early evening. Mercury at the beginning of October is still above the bright star Mika, forming a line with Venus and Alpha Libre at the beginning of the month. But now Mercury is rapidly sinking towards the horizon, and by the uh, end of the first week of October, it'll be lost in the twilight, and then will reappear in the morning sky in the latter half of the month. However, it's never going to be very high above the horizon, and for most people it won't be high enough to come out of the twilight to see in the morning sky. So let's turn to Venus. Now, Venus is really dominating the evening sky from about 30 minutes after sunset until nearly two hours after the sky is fully dark. So I've been able to see Venus quite easily at 9pm at night. And I can see it as early as five minutes after sunset if I'm not actually looking for it during the daylight. But as I said, Venus is going to put on a really good display this month where it's travelling from dim Libra up into the brighter constellation of Scorpius. And indeed, if you wait for a while as when the sky is fully dark, the sight of Venus underneath the upside down question mark of Scorpius is really nice and very good uh, for astrophotography, especially if you've got a horizon like a lake or the ocean. And it's still, if you can try and capture the image of Scorpius with Venus below it and its reflection, that, that will make for some stunning astrophotography. Now, Venus climbs higher in, in Scorpius, and on the 9th, it's very close to Delta Scorpio. Now, for me, I, I say the, the three stars that form the, the T-junction of Scorpius is the head of Scorpius, but actually, strictly speaking, they're the quads of Scorpius. And it's going to be Venus on the 9th will be very close to Delta Scorpio. It's about, going to be about a finger width away. The pair will fit nicely into the field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars. Although it's not going to be very exciting, unlike Alpha Librae, uh, Delta Scorpio is not a double star or anything like that, but it can be of interest. Venus then higher up Scorpius. And on the 16th on 17th, Venus is close to the bright red star Antares and the colour contrast between bright white Venus and red Antares will be quite interesting. Antares is one of the brightest stars in the sky, but it's even so compared to um, the brilliance of Venus, it's going to be uh, relatively dim. Again, uh, it'll fit in the field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars. And Venus uh, continues to climb Scorpius although technically it's entering the constellation of Ophiuchus in the latter part of the month, and then comes close to the globular cluster of M19 on the 23rd and 24th. Now, this will be visible uh, in binoculars or telescope only. Uh, M19 is about the, at the uh, limit of uh, your ability to see uh, dim objects about magnitude six in the dark sky. And of course, Venus is so bright, it, it will, Brown out M19 to the unaided eye, you should be able to see it in uh, binoculars or a small telescope. Again, Venus will be will be overwhelming, but the just the, the idea of seeing these two together. 
Uh, and then on the 30th, Venus is at its greatest distance from the sun, 47 degrees. And after, uh, and after this, Venus will begin to sink back up towards the horizon. Now, Venus encounters the moon as well on the 9th. The moon is below Venus. That's on the 9th when, the, uh, when Venus and uh, Delta Scorpio is closest. And then on the 10th, the crescent moon is above Venus, forming a nice triangle with, uh, with uh, Venus and Ankaris. So that will be very nice to look at too. Now, Ian, you mentioned that Venus will be sinking back towards a horizon. I've been enjoying watching it growing higher and higher in the western sky until it's probably getting to the point where it's almost overhead. So it sinks back down again. It just doesn't keep on heading over toward the east and becoming the morning star. It goes around the other side and comes up. When does it become a morning star again? It becomes a warning star towards the end of 2021. So both Mercury and uh, Venus never get very far from the sun. And this was one of the first clues we had that planets orbit the sun rather than orbit the Earth. It was a, a conundrum to the ancient astronomers uh, that if, every, if uh, Earth, the Earth was the centre of the solar system and all the planets in the sun uh, and the moon revolved around Earth, why did Venus and Mercury never get very far from the sun? So well, I've mentioned 47 degrees. That's about as far as Venus can get from the sun before it starts falling down. And that's, of course, because Venus and Mercury are orbiting the sun interior to our orbit. So Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, all the others are orbiting the sun away from us. So because uh, the orbit of Venus is much smaller than ours, and because it's uh, orbiting uh, the sun interior to our orbit, we see Venus come out to its uh, greatest extent and then come back and go back towards the sun, lost in the twilight, comes back out on the other side and becomes the morning star. Cool. And then, of course, it, it does, does it again, goes out to its greatest extent on the uh, eastern side, comes back again, goes uh, past the sun, lost in the twilight, then comes back again becomes the evening star again. Of course, th this is quite interesting in that sometimes, of course, Venus crosses the disk of the sun. Now, this is very uh, rare uh, and occurs at some, uh, typically at, uh, at uh, century intervals. And then there's a couple of them, uh, they're, they're paired close together. And so one of the ways we could calculate the, the scale of the solar system was to time the entry of Venus onto the disk of the sun and the exit of Venus onto the disk of the sun. And, and we can do the same with Mercury, but it's harder to do an accurate comparison because Mercury is so much smaller. Fortunately, the two Venus transits have occurred and we won't be seeing any more for at least a century. I can give you the real value off the top, but I can't remember it off the top of my hand, but it's going to be quite some time before the next transit of Venus. Uh, and a, a little while before the next transit of Mercury. In fact, there's going to be one relatively soon, but we won't see it from Australia because it, it occurs when the sun is below the horizon from our point of view. That, that's why we never see Venus going much further. And, uh, and that's how Venus allowed us to, to determine the scale of the solar system. Fantastic. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Celestial Mechanics 101. 
indeed, uh, and and three hundred one too, because uh, knowing the the scale of the solar system was really difficult to work out because it involves a lot of complicated celestial mechanics, and we had the, the a general idea of how far you know we we knew that the Earth was one astronomical unit from the sun, yay. But what, what was that distance? And getting that distance right required understanding the timing of, of the transit of Venus. Yeah, well, I remember that. I think it was about 2012. Yeah, that was a big event. It was. I was, I was out in my backyard taking images with my, with my very primitive system at the time. And I had a lovely time. Indeed. Okay, what else have you got for us up there for this month, Ian? Okay, well, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Jupiter and Saturn are still uh, putting on a nice display. The pair came to opposition in August, uh, but unlike Mars and Venus, as I said last uh, month, the size of Jupiter and Saturn don't change dramatically with opposition. So Jupiter remains big and bright this month, uh, and will remain so for quite some time. Now, uh, once uh, uh, Venus is set, Jupiter is now the brightest object in the sky aside from the moon, and it's very easy to tell. As uh, the months have been going on, Jupiter is rising earlier and earlier, and now at astronomical twilight, Jupiter is very easily seen uh, reasonably high in the northeast. So telescopically, when Jupiter will be at its highest uh, in the north, is when it's when it's best to see when Jupiter and Saturn or any planet is highest above the horizon, then it's uh, in a lot more stiller air. Uh, there's less horizon muck, and it's much better to observe telescopically or even in binoculars. So for October, that's around about between nine o'clock uh, at the beginning of the month to. A bit after eight, a bit before eight o'clock towards the end of the month. By the time the end of the month comes around, Jupiter will be at its highest during twilight. So your best telescopic imaging is pretty well gone by the end of October. It'll still be nice. So by the time uh, time fully dark, however, Jupiter will be lower in the lower towards the western horizon and there'll be more turbulence and more murk. So, but nonetheless, it will be still, still it'll be a delight to watch uh, Jupiter's uh, moons in, in binoculars. And for most of the month, it's going to be very good to catch telescopically. It's also good because you don't have to wait up till midnight to get your telescope out to have a look. But of course, as October goes on, uh, it's got, the months are becoming warmer and warmer. We get more atmospheric disturbance. So your images won't be so fantastic. But I, look, even with, even with atmospheric turbulence, I love watching Jupiter and its moons. It doesn't matter uh, if it's a bit wobbly. It's still, uh, still fantastic. We watch it a bit through binoculars and seeing those moons dance around is fantastic. It is. So again, uh, at astronomical twilight, uh, we're able to see uh, Venus bright in the west and bright Jupiter in the northeast. So they're, they're roughly in the same height at the beginning of the month. Of course, as the month goes on, Venus is still rising, but Jupiter's rising a bit, uh, even more. So that, that neat look to the left 
look to the west, look to the east and see two bright planets almost at the same height, that will be gone. It's now, but uh, you'll still look to, look to the west and see Venus and then look to the northeast and see Jupiter somewhat higher, but you've got that you know, really uh, bright planets uh, to enjoy uh, when the sky is fully dark. I mentioned looking at, at, at Jupiter in the, in the telescope and, and it's, even though it's wobbly, it'll look really uh, cool. Venus is very good in telescopes at the moment and will continue to get better. It's increasing in size and as Venus increases in size dramatically uh, as, uh, as it go, comes towards its crescent phase. So right at the moment, it's a nice half moon shape, but it's very hard to get a stable image because as Venus is closer to the horizon, there's obviously more turbulence and unlike uh, Jupiter or Saturn or the moon or Mars, unless you've got a, a, an ultraviolet filter, there's not really much to focus on and you really have to, to play around with, uh, fo with uh, focus to get, the, get it right. Uh, and also, if you're using a low power, you won't see anything because it's so bright. It's just this giant glare. But if you have a, a, a decent uh, high-power lens and a, maybe a neutral density filter for, or, or a, a moon filter for your eyepiece, uh, you'll be able to cut the glare down and see Venus as a half-moon shape. And as the month goes on, it'll become uh, more and more half-moonish, heading towards uh, being uh, crescent. Crescent phase is much better in November and December. Let's move back to Saturn. Now, Saturn is moving in retrograde. That is, it's moving away opposite to its normal uh, uh, orbital uh, direction because, of course, at opposition, Earth has overtaken it. And then it will start here to change direction and move back in the normal direction. So we'll see, see Saturn appear to come to a standstill on the 11th. Now, again, Saturn's rings are always fantastic through a small telescope. In binoculars, it just looks like an oval, but you'll be able to see it. See, even in small telescopes, you'll be able to see the rings quite nicely. Uh, now, because we're past opposition, at opposition, you're looking directly at Saturn with the, the shadow of Saturn directly behind it on the ring. So there wasn't very much, it wasn't very hard to, it was very hard to see the shadow of Saturn on the rings. Now that we're past opposition, you can see the shadow beginning to become more and more pronounced on the rings. And on the 30th, Saturn's at a point called the Eastern Quadrature, where the Sun-Earth-Saturn angle is uh, 90 degrees. And what this means that the shadow of Saturn on its rings is at its maximum extent. And so you'll be able to see a decent bite taken out of the rings and even small telescopes and will give Saturn a really interesting 3D effect. So that's something to look forward to. Again, the planets are constantly changing and uh, there's always something different to see. Uh, Saturn's moons are a lot harder to follow, uh, unlike uh, Jupiter's moons. So they're, most of them are quite dim, but uh, Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, uh, can be quite interesting to follow as it uh, orbits uh, Saturn. Uh, in really high-power eyepieces, though, where you're getting decent view, views of, of Saturn, you'll, you won't be able to see Titan because it's much further away. 
one of the light power eyepieces where you can see, still see the rings. Uh, you should be able to pick Titan uh, orbiting Saturn over uh, consecutive nights, and that'll be very nice. Very good. So that's the evening sky. The morning sky has the, uh, the summer constellations in it. And uh, Saturn and Jupiter are still dominating the early morning sky, but um, they're starting to set around about astronomical twilight. Um, so that won't be quite as exciting in the morning sky compared to the evening sky. Very good, Ian. Do you have a tangent for us for this month? I do indeed, but before I go on to the tangent, I'll just remind you about the Orionid meteor shower. Now, the Orionid meteor shower is a minor shower with very modest rates that, that's normally visible from late evening until dawn with the peak on the 21st of this year. But sadly, tragically, the full moon uh, is also on the 21st, as you may remember from early on, and the full moon is almost on top of the radiance. So if you want to go out and have a look for some meteors, Go ahead, but you're not going to see much. Talking about meteors brings me to my, uh, my tangent. And you remember how last month I talked about confusion between comets and asteroids? Oh, yes. Well, this month I'm going to talk about comets and asteroids smashing into things. The solar system is full of rubble, icy and non-icy, of various sizes wandering around. Cue the uh, planet-dwarf planet argument, not tonight, Satan. Yep. Anyway, occasionally these bits run into, uh, into uh, another bit. Uh, for example, the potato shape of Vesta is thought to be due to one such encounter, and the metal asteroid Psyche is thought to be a, the, an asteroidal core left over from another collision. Of course, these sorts of encounters are rarer these days because most of the debris that was wandering around in the early solar system has been hoovered up by gravity wells. Uh, and in the past, they were more common, as you can tell from the scars on the moon. And like I said, these days, uh, asteroid collisions are, uh, are relatively rare. Uh, we've probably picked up two asteroid-asteroid collisions uh, since we've been uh, looking. Asteroid Sheila in 2010 uh, and another asteroid rejoices uh, in the name P2010A2, which uh, was originally described as a comet. And, and so we've been able to pick up the trails of debris from these things. In fact, we may have even been up, picked up a uh, asteroid or comet collision in an extra, around an extrasolar planet uh, around, around uh, another star. There was a uh, an object which we thought was a planet orbiting another star, and it was looking really uh, really good, and then it up and vanished. And when they went back and looked at the detailed images, so in 2004 and 2006, uh, it was really bright and really uh, obvious. Uh, and this is around, was uh, orbiting uh, uh, the star Fomalut, which is now actually quite easily visible in the southeastern sky. Uh, then in 2014, it vanished. I went back and started looking at the, at the images in detail and noticed that from 2008 to 2014, it became dimmer and bigger as if it was a cloud of expanding debris. So that, that, that's really 
quite amazing to see something like this because obviously it had to have been a big object in the first place, yep. but it can't be too big. And to see something that big being smashed into fragments is kind of amazing. So Fomalhaut B, we also is known as the Eye of Sauron because of the dust ring around it looking like uh, Sauron's eye from the movie Lord of the Rings. Very good. So, so, so smashing into things is really, uh, really interesting, but fairly rare these days. So seeing asteroids smash into each other doesn't happen very often. Seeing asteroids smash into bigger things, we see more often. For example, the uh, Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter has picked up fresh meteor and asteroid impacts on Mars. Uh, there's some really nice ones from 2019 and 2021. Uh, but most of the, the uh, impacts that are not actually happening on Earth occur on Jupiter. And the uh, uh, most famous one, of course, was the uh, comet that uh, impacted on, um, on, uh, on uh, uh, Jupiter, which is uh, Shoemaker-Levy, which smashed into Jupiter in 1994, uh, leaving a dramatic series of scars on, uh, on Jupiter. Now, of course, Jupiter, uh, we're only seeing the upper atmosphere. The scars were actually long-lived disturbances in the atmosphere of Jupiter from the uh, cometary fragments slamming into it. And we've got some fantastic images of the flashes as uh, the fragments uh, slammed into Jupiter. And Hubble even has some uh, nice images of the, the plumes from one of the uh, impacts rising above the atmosphere of Jupiter and then rotating across. And that was the most famous one, but there have been quite a few impacts observed since then, mostly by amateurs. The most recent one occurred in September, just, just past, where a, uh, a, an amateur observer, a Brazilian amateur astronomer, Jose Piera, noticed a bright flash on uh, Jupiter for about two seconds. Uh, now, these flashes could be anything, uh, but they, these flashes were confirmed by two other astronomers. So you, you know it's not just a, a gamma ray hitting your uh, CCD camera at the wrong time if other people are seeing the same thing. Other impacts uh, have left, as I said, the, the uh, um, Shoemaker-Levy impact left obvious scars. And another impact have left uh, similar scars. For example, a uh, 2009 event left a, uh, an atmospheric scar. Uh, 2012 uh, left, left a, a scar. But uh, the 2021 impact didn't appear to uh, leave any uh, scar behind. That's really interesting. So obviously, like Jupiter is, is, we think of as being a giant vacuum cleaner sucking up uh, debris, which would otherwise uh, make it into the inner solar system and making life a lot harder for us here on Earth. Now, of course, things have slammed into Earth. The uh, KT impact is just one example uh, of uh, large uh, lumps of things coming from outer space uh, slamming into, into Earth uh, and with the... Uh, Cretaceous tertiary extinction, uh, changing life on Earth and making it possible for, for small squeaky mammals 
to evolve into us. But as, as I said with uh, the moon, when the uh, solar system was young, uh, there were lots of things uh, flashing around, slamming in and making uh, up holes. As uh, time went on, there was fewer and fewer of them. So since the KT impact, nothing really big has slammed into us. We have the Tsunga event, which occurred over 100 years ago in Siberia, which is probably an airburst where the, the, uh, the meteor uh, or asteroid or, or cometary fragment uh, exploded above the surface with the resulting ball of uh, heat and compressed gas slamming into the ground below. And then there was the, uh, the Russian uh, asteroid, which also was an airburst, uh, shattered windows and uh, generally rattled everybody. Now, with the success of the uh, story around the KP impact, uh, as an explanation for the, uh, for the Cretaceous extinction, uh, there were a lot of uh, people immediately started looking for evidence of other impacts which could explain other extinctions. And after some initial claims that, for example, there was a, a periodic peaks in extinctions, which suggested comets were being rained down on Earth uh, at uh, uh, several hundred million year intervals due to a large uh, planet or potentially dwarf star. Uh, when they finally, re when they did more intense analysis, those peaks disappeared. And, for ex and uh, the Permian extinction, for example, which is an even bigger extinction uh, than the uh, uh, KT extinction, appears to be uh, driven by entirely different environmental factors and not by an impact. But the idea of big things slamming into Earth and doing things still has uh, lots of pull and various historical events have been blamed on large uh, extraterrestrial impacts uh, with varying degrees of evidence. The latest one uh, may have uh, come across is a claim that a, a particular archaeological site in the uh, uh, Middle East uh, represents evidence of an impact by a comet or asteroid, and that this uh, may have uh, uh, influenced or been uh, a event that was later mythologized as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unfortunately, uh, although it's a, uh, uh, a good uh, idea in principle, it actually doesn't look like it's, it's, it's uh, real. The sediments at Tal El Haman, which is supposed to be this, uh, interact, uh, this uh, impact site, suggests that actually it's just old erosion, that the uh, buildings were all mud brick and mud brick crumbles and with age, even in the middle of the, in the desert. And so what, the, what's, what has been claimed as evidence of a impact slamming these buildings down is just what you'd expect from normal uh, uh, buildings disintegrating over age 
uh, there's even uh, some nice examples of erosion and uh, and and uh, uh, the build-up from uh, wind blowing over the events. The broken pottery just looks like broken pottery. There's no evidence it's been slammed uh, by a giant impact. Uh, the, the skeletons, which are supposed to be disarticulated through a, a giant explosion, look exactly like you would expect from skeletons that have been stuck in a, a mound and then uh, have been occasionally disturbed by animals burrowing into the mound. And finally, the impact shock, shock quartz grains look exactly like what you'd expect from it. It could be from a, a meteor impact, but it's also these sorts of shocks are also seen with uh, lightning strikes. And lightning strikes in a desert are really quite, are quite common. So we all love a good impact for reasons that are... Uh, that are not entirely clear. We're quite happy to watch movies about uh, giant asteroids and Bruce Willis. And we know big impacts occur. We know big impacts have had really uh, important uh, effects uh, in the history of Earth. But we, we shouldn't let ourselves get too excited by them. We know there will be more, Ian, and in the meantime, we just need to um, treat each other with kindness. I, I agree, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's like the impacts uh, are uh, a, a hammer, and people are looking for evidence of that of a hammer all the way through our history, and seeing seeing uh, hammer prints where no hammer prints are, because of the, um, it's just such a, a compelling idea. But it's uh, something we should uh, watch out for, that we are so taken up by how compelling the idea is and not apply our critical uh, facilities to actually make sure that, uh, the, uh, that the brilliance of the idea doesn't uh, overcome uh, uh, the actual needed evidence or just doesn't drown out the needed evidence. Follow the evidence. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Uh, no worries, Brendan. As always, it's a pleasure, and especially over the coming weeks, uh, the sky is going to be particularly beautiful. So let's hope uh, we encourage people to go out and look up, although uh, if you're looking out to the west, uh, you're probably looking straight out, and hopefully some people will see some really fantastic things in the coming months. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian. A pleasure as always, Brendan. A pleasure as always. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. All the best, and we will see you in about a month's time. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, but we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks' time, we'll bring you part two of our interview with amazing exoplanet hunter, Jake Clark. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!